everyone. Welcome to episode 44 of the MDG Grindcast, the spikiest podcast in all of Central North Carolina and Tübingen, Germany, with a special focus on the SEG Tour. We are your hosts. I'm Chris Castor-Apple, and uh, fresh off of SCG... What was this SCG? I can never keep track. I'm terrible at this. Uh, we were in Louisville last Louisville. Week. But modern open, the more important thing, is Collins Mullen. Hey! <laughs> What's up? Hey, how's it going? Just got back from SCG Louisville. It was the modern open. Yep. Um, played Death Shadow. It was a lot of fun. Good. Cool. Yeah, I, I definitely wanted to ask like how that went, because I know we were talking about sort of the philosophy behind choosing a deck like that for, for this weekend. I don't, And I, I know you had a strong day one, so I, I don't know if you feel like it paid off or if you made... Uh, an error in judgment or or how you feel about your your decision for the weekend but we should definitely talk about that right so the deck selection i made to just kind of catch everybody up was kind of more based on like my own introspection i guess on like i'm losing my confidence a little bit with humans and feel like i'm not playing as well or playing a little sloppily Mm -hmm. with that deck so i wanted to play a deck that really kind of like challenged me and had like really difficult decision points kind of throughout the entire game. So I picked up Death Shadow, which is like, you know, extraordinarily difficult to sequence and pilot correctly, just because I thought it would give me that, you know, just like the focus back of like, it's going to demand that I stay focused or whatever. And honestly, I think that that whole side of everything went really, really well. I think throughout the whole tournament, I was super focused. I was really thinking through my decisions and the consequences of the decisions that I was making. And I think I played just you know, exceptionally well over the course of the weekend, just kind of like from my own perspective. Yeah, I know that you've, like, like you've commented before after playing Death Shadow, like, I have no idea how anybody wins with this deck because it's not, not because <laughs> it's bad, but because it's so hard to play. Yeah. So I don't know if you still felt like that or if you, you know, felt like you were playing it close to where where it can be played or what. It would be silly to think that I am getting, you know, am at that point or whatever, just because I think it's probably impossible to be at that point. Sure. Maybe Dylan's there, uh, but I thought I was playing very well, and I felt in the driver's seat for the most part, and I felt like the decisions that I was making were like very logically sound. So I, I definitely thought I was getting close to playing uh, it to a point where it was just, you know, kind of humming, I guess. Sure. It's hard to describe. But yeah, like, there... The thing about Death Shadow is that there are, it's more than, so when you look at like the general decisions that you have to make in a game of magic, you're kind of talking about like, you know, if you're playing a creature deck, you're generally, like one of the aspects that you have to think about is like, um, A, curving out, right? So you need to worry about like, you know, making sure that you're optimizing that by leading on your, your mana accelerants and everything. Mm-hmm. But then like another aspect of the game that you have to focus on is like the creature combat and like, you know, what to attack with and... And, like, these are concepts that happen a lot more in Limited, I, w- I would guess, is so, like, you know, in Limited, you have to, like, think about, you know, uh, the racing situations and everything, and, and that's just kind of, like, inherently built into Magic when they're, like, two creature decks are facing off against each other. Yeah. But Death Shadow has that element of you have to worry about combat and, you know, and, you know, curving out and everything, but then there are a bunch of other elements that you have to really focus on as well with Death Shadow. You have to focus on managing your uh sequencing your cantrips appropriately to maximize the the cards that you see in a particular order 
you have to identify when you're digging for a particular kind of card and how to maximize that dig based on your, you know, cantripping your, like sequencing all of your cantrips. Mm -hmm. And then you also have to worry about like managing your opponent's cards in their hand through your discard spells, right? So you have to be like, all right, how do I time these discard spells so that I'm have the most likely chance of like, you know, hitting the important cards out of my opponent's hand before you can cast them. Yep. And you have to manage, like, you know, just like all these things are happening at once and it all starts on turn one, right? From like the sequencing. So like from the very beginning, you have to really dig into like, it, like all of these decision trees and all of these factors of magic all at the same time. So it's really a lot to keep up with. <laughs> no kidding. Um, and it, you, you really... You really have to be super focused on all of those things, and that really helped me, I think, just keep that focus throughout the weekend of, all right, I'm dialing into being focused on playing this game as optimally as I can f- through all of these facets or whatever. Yeah, so you're just trying really hard not to end up on autopilot at any time, I guess. Yes, right, right. Right, for sure. Because, like, I and I, I, you know, I definitely made plenty of mistakes over the weekend, and they were sometimes as simple as, like, I fetched out a steam vents instead of a watery grave, and it was just disastrous throughout the rest <laughs> of the game, you know? And just kind of, like, other, like, tiny, tiny, minute things of, like, you know, this small decision ended up having a huge impact on, you know, my ability to do certain things or whatever. Mm-hmm. But then I also got, like, super rewarded for, for like, making particular, like, very minute plays as well. Like, I was playing against elves, and it got to the point where I pretty much just needed to hit an Anger of the Gods, or I was going to lose. And in my opponent's end step, I had a um, Thought Scour and a Serum Visions in my hand. And they had just made an attack that put me down to, like, one or two... And I needed an Anger of the Gods to survive, I, I was pretty sure. So instead of thought scouring myself in my instep and then uh, untapping and casting Seer Visions, I had five lands, so I just untapped, and I cast Seer Visions first, drew a card, scryed twice, the the Anger was in the, the scry, so I thought scoured my opponent, drew this the uh, Anger, nice. and cast it right but if you're just on autopilot you just thought scour yourself in your instep right? right but then you only have two looks or i guess three with your draw step mm-hmm. your cantrips are only giving you two looks at that point for having the anger in your hand for your next turn because you get the draw off of your thought scour and the draw off of your serum visions yeah, yeah. And you don't get access to the scry two but if you wait and you cast Serum Visions, you draw a card, and then you scry two, now we have three looks off of our cantrips, and we can get one of those with our Thought Scour by targeting our opponent with the Thought Scour, right? So, you know, like, those tiny, tiny, like, decision-making processes, like, to maximize the cards that you see when you're digging for a particular card are so important, right? So I was able to buy myself an extra card, essentially, or another look at a card for, like, my my two outer of the two angry gods that I had in my deck and getting rewarded for that just it just feels so good <laughs> <laughs> yeah Dylan actually wrote an article about like properly sequencing your cantrips right I, I don't remember if yeah, it was specific yeah. to death shadow or to delver or, or what but it, it was it was kind of applicable to both certainly 
Um, mm. But that's yeah, super important part, especially with the lower powered sort of cantrips in in Delver or in in Death Shadow as compared to like Legacy Delver. You know, the the scrying after drawing with Serum Visions means that you got to be really careful not to screw up your scry with fetch lands and that sort of thing. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And Street Wraith is like there's like so many elements that exist to right to like appropriately using Street Wraith. Um, and and Dylan loves this part of Shadow, and I've I've kind of learned to as well. But <laughs> the key is that if you have spells to cast that are reasonable, you just like don't ever cycle your Street Wraith. Because I think yeah. that the default action for a lot of players is just to be like, all right, Street Wraith, cycle it, let's see what we get. But there's actually a lot of utility to having Street Wraiths in your hand later, because say you make it to the late game and you've the the rest of your cards in your hand are like you know good like early game cards like you have a um, you know a thought scour and a thought seize and you play your guy and then it's turn three or whatever and you're kind of like out of stuff to do and then you like draw into a a serum visions and then on turn three you can like cast your serum visions draw a card scry into a card that you want that turn and then cycle your street wraith into getting the card that you want that turn yeah and then all of a sudden your your street wraith is just like insanely more value than it would have been if you just like fired it off on turn one or whatever yeah totally that's one of those things that's kind of like when when people are using their street rates intelligently like you can tell that oh this person understands how to play their deck it's kind of like like fetch lands and legacy like if somebody just cracks their fetch land for no reason in a brainstorm deck then you're like okay <laughs> this person's got yeah. a long way to go they're getting used to the deck. <laughs> and, and right, i think it's right. kind of a similar thing because the cost of doing it is so low that that waiting to get the maximum value costs you not very much and it takes a long time to realize that yeah yeah for sure but yeah, so so yeah, Death, uh, Death Shadow. Very happy I played it. I ended up going ten and five for forty fourth, I think. Mm-hmm. But you know, just kind of like overall tournament experience for me, it was you know I felt very rewarded for the plays that I made, which felt really good, and I felt like I was pretty focused. So you know, yeah. So mission accomplished, definitely. If nothing else, I yeah, I I think that I accomplished my goals that weekend. That's good. Cool. Well, we'll we'll move on in just one second to sort of the the tournament itself, the metagame that sort of appeared through that and through through Magic Online. But first, I just want to take a quick second to thank our new patrons. So we've got uh, a couple of new patrons hanging out in Discord. So thank you to Hunter Crot, Kyle Norman, Daniel McCune, and Jonathan Eiley. Uh, and I also want to make a correction from last week. Uh, Siler Potterdorf is not a real name. Siler Potterf is his actual name, and that's very embarrassing. So I just want to apologize for <laughs> completely screwing that up. Uh, <laughs> whoops! But uh, thanks so much. That's all right. <laughs> thanks so much to those guys for subscribing and supporting the podcast. Anybody who wants to offer up some support, you know, head to our website mtggrindcast.com or straight to our Patreon at patreon.com/mtggrindcast. Definitely appreciate any support. Come hang out in the Discord. Come chat with us. Um, if you're not in a position to do that, that's also totally fine. You listening is is pretty awesome. But we we appreciate all of you very much. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, so um, we should definitely get to these tournament results. Uh, like that top eight and and really the whole top thirty two was very interesting, given sort of what we thought the metagame was going in. You know, the kind of the top three decks that we were thinking going in, uh, especially seeing like Magic Online results and that sort of thing, was definitely Humans, Affinity, and Hollow One. 
Um, but it didn't really seem to play out like that. And I'm not sure what how exactly it, it appeared on the ground or what people were talking about. So I don't know if you want if you have any insight into that, like just being at the tournament. Yeah, so, okay, so the concept that we talk a lot about for modern is that it kind of exists, the metagame exists on a wheel, mm-hmm. right? So there are, the wheel, I think, consists of four major archetypes. There's aggro decks, fair decks, combo decks, and big mana decks is the other one for for modern, right? Right. And they kind of all prey off of each other. The aggro decks beat the Combo decks generally, because they're, the aggro decks generally have some sort of disruptive elements. Uh, the combo decks beat the big mana decks, the big mana decks beat the fair decks, and the fair decks beat the aggro decks. And which of these major archetypes is the most popular at the, you know, at the current time in modern definitely rotates, but it's definitely clear that there are times where one of these made, like overarching archetypes is like the, the most dominant, most popular archetype. Right. And uh previously it had been very clear that humans and hollowed one and affinity these are all aggro decks right particularly kind of like disruptive aggro decks in the human shell and so that aggro archetype was like the the dominant like on top of the wheel for for the time being in modern but the deck that preyed off of those decks are these fair decks and i think it's very clear that given what we're looking at for the top eight of the modern open in louisville that we've actually gone through, I think, another rotation of that wheel. And I think that the fair decks are now sitting on top of modern. Because if we're just kind of looking at the, the top eight of Louisville, we have Mardu Pyromancer, fair deck, Jeskai Control, fair deck, Green White Hexproof, not a fair deck, but kind it of, kind of also <laughs> preys on these aggro decks. Yeah. But kind of outside so, of the wheel like, a little bit. But yeah. Yeah, it's a little it's a little outside of the wheel, but it, it's another deck that like really preys on these aggro decks, right? Because they can't really deal with, yeah. um, you know, Daybreak Coronet. Jeskai Control, another fair deck. And then we've got Humans, uh, just because Humans is great. <laughs> <laughs> and and then we've got Caleb Scherer, because Caleb Scherer is great, but he's playing a deck that's probably not, wasn't the best position for that weekend. But Caleb is just insane at Storm, so yeah, he's going to Caleb is well. just a monster. Like, that's... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Caleb is definitely is definitely reaping the rewards of knowing a deck better than probably anybody else. So yeah. good for him. And then the kind of surprise for me, but I guess it makes sense given the overall thing that I'm talking about is that we have two Jun decks in top eight as well. Yeah. And and those are just more fair decks that prey in theory on the on the aggro decks. But uh, I was kind of saying last week that I thought Jun was just bad. So right. So <laughs> oh, well. I, there, I mean, there's there's kind of two things at this top eight, you know, that, that stand out to me that I, I think, uh, like, merit some discussion. Like, like like yes, number one, it was definitely a fair deck weekend. That was the kind of deck to be on. Uh, it was definitely preying on decks like humans, that sort of thing. Um, but the interesting things are, number one, like, I wasn't very excited. If I were playing this past weekend, I would not have picked up a fair deck, I don't think. Because I don't think it's very easy to build a 75 that's strongly favored against humans and also strongly favored against Hollow One. You're kind of dividing your resources that way. And we talked about some of the ways to do that, like like Path to Exile is very good and Wrath Effects are very good. So, I mean, these are things that, that definitely point towards the success of Jeskai. So, so maybe that is, is quite reasonable. Um, yeah. 
But I think one of the things that, that did happen here, I, I think which may be what sort of allowed Jun to be pretty good this weekend, is Hollow One just didn't really show up, at least not in a successful way. Yeah, and I think that there might be a couple of factors to that. I think that Hollowed One is one of those decks that people just don't really like to play in paper. It's just a lot of bookkeeping, and it's like, you know, the random discards are awkward for the players and everything. So I think that there is like a little bit of that factor of like, yeah, but do I really want to play Hollow One in paper and have to like roll dice every turn or whatever? Sure. And you know, that's not, it's not like a, you know, it's kind of one of the factors that's taking a step outside of the general like, you know, oh, is this deck well positioned or good? Like those other like reasons to play a deck or not. I think that there are other reasons that decks become popular or unpopular. I think that like, Lantern Control is a good example of that. Lantern Control was, I think, very easily the best deck in Modern for a long time, but we just didn't see a lot of it because people don't want to play that deck. Mm -hmm. Jund, I think, is another deck that is influenced a lot by factors outside of it actually being good, just because people love playing Jund. So it's going to be popular, and we're going to see it. Yeah. So I think that Hollow One might be suffering from that a little bit. I think that it's still good, but there's the factors of people don't really want to play it, and there's also the factors of this it's not very well set up against humans which is a deck that people do want to play in paper a lot mm -hmm. so humans in paper is probably overrepresented and that can definitely make things difficult for people who do decide to play hollow one yeah and that makes a lot of sense and then given those factors if hollow one doesn't really show up you know it's very easy to build uh, a fair deck that is strong against humans and strong against affinity a lot of the same cards are good against both decks uh, and we yeah. definitely see that in Jeskai Control. I am not super... Like, I, I still can't quite explain two Jun decks in the top eight, besides the fact that they were piloted by players who are very good with the deck. Um, I'm sure the, mm -hmm. and, and the builds are, are up to date. But, like, there's a lot of decks that I don't want to be casting Liliana of the Veil vale against in this format. Yeah, that was one thing that we talked about a lot, that Dylan and I talked a lot about, uh, is that Liliana of the Veil vale is... We feel like it's just bad and modern right yeah. now. And this deck has four. Um, it always has four in the main deck. So that's yeah, that's just rough. And it's just one of those cards that like you know people see take over games every once in a while, and they're like, okay, yeah, that card is just like belongs or whatever. But if you actually take a look at like kind of the popular matchups going into this weekend, Liliana is just horrendous against uh, Affinity and Humans and Hollow One mm -hmm. and all these other decks. And you know, of course, it's really good against things like. Death Shadow or Jund or like you know some of the other fair decks. So I guess that's like you know, but it's a not. Good time to bring it but back like it's whatever, not but... even that good against like Mardu Pyromancer, which is yeah 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 a, a big fair deck that you need to like. Right. If I'm putting a Planeswalker in my deck, I, I kind of want it to be good against all of the fair decks. I, is is my hope. Yeah yeah. So yeah so that's kind of like an interesting take on Liliana the Veil. At least, kind of like while the aggro was on top of the wheel, we really thought that Liliana the Veil vale was just not great, and that's part of what made Jund not very great. Is yeah. because that's kind of like, I think in order for the deck Jund to be good, Liliana the Veil vale needs to be kind of like what you're looking for, and we might be rotating into a format where you do want Liliana the Veil, vale. like say the formats dominated by a bunch of fair decks like Jund and uh, Jeskai and all this other stuff. So, you know, th that could, like, they could have just, like, played against those decks kind of, like, in day two, for example. 
where those decks are probably overrepresented and they, they had success because of that. So mm-hmm. so that could be a factor. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's that's definitely like I, I'm not advocating for like playing Jund with fewer Lilianas of the Veil or anything. Like it's definitely I might be. <laughs> I'm willing to I'm willing to take that stance. Yeah, I mean, um, but maybe not anymore. Maybe we've missed that window. Right, right. Um, but I just I I feel like it's kind of too core to the deck's identity. Like the reason Jund is good, the like game plan of Jund is like strip both players of resources, and then individual cards out of Jund are way better than individual cards out of other decks. When you've like you're so low on cards that synergies don't pop up anymore, and Liliana is just so core to that that I feel like if four Lilianas is wrong, then Jund can't really be right. But you know, I'm no I'm <laughs> yeah. no Jund expert. I've played against it a lot more than I've played with it. But yeah, sure. But yeah, so so I guess that's kind of my take on yeah. what's going on in modern right now. I think that we we should be prepared for a a complete rotation of the wheel moving forward. Um, it'll be interesting to see if that holds up throughout. But I think that decks like Mardu and Jeskai are probably going to be the top dogs moving forward, at least going into the next big modern event. So yeah. uh, we've got. We, I think we have another modern tournament this weekend. Uh, SCG Milwaukee. So it'll be interesting to keep an eye on what happens uh, there. Yeah, yeah, that's nice to get like an immediate check on what's what's going on. So that'll definitely yeah. be interesting. Yeah, I mean, the obvious next step to take here then is if you're going to be playing against a whole bunch of like three-color fair decks, then you you want to be on a big mana deck, whether that's Tron or Valakut or something like that. Um, Might be time to crack out the Primeval Titans. Yeah, I mean, Valakut is in kind of a weird place because like... You know, if a bunch of people just copy this first place list, Marshall Arthur's list, then they've got three main deck Blood Moons. So <laughs> that's a serious yeah. problem for Valakut. Uh, like, it may be right to play Valakut with, like... I- I'm not sure what it does to your matchups to, like, have a main deck Blood Moon answer in there. I, I don't know if that, you know, is an okay thing to do to, like... Uh, summoner's pack four or something but that may be one way to go or I, I suppose you could just play tron but that does still seem kind of dangerous but you know blood moon is especially out of mardu pyromancer is less insane against tron tron can still win a game yeah for sure uh but yeah it becomes very difficult for uh for valka game one to be a blood moon yeah. um you know if if there becomes if that becomes like a pretty big part of the metagame um, it's just like a bunch of fair decks with main deck blood moons, then I could see putting like a Rex Sage in if you want to play Titan Shift. Mm-hmm. But if there are blood moons everywhere, then you probably just kind of don't want to do that. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. It, it just definitely removes a lot of the allure from the deck. And then, you know, right. this is a small thing, but it, you're kind of leaving yourself open to like summoners pack for Rex Sage, play the Rex Sage, then they just like Faithless Looting, play their second blood moon, and then you lose the game on your upkeep. So <laughs> that's... That's oh, not, yeah. not an ideal <laughs> result. <laughs> so, I mean, I I kind of just straight up like Mardu Pyromancer a lot. I, I like it in a lot of these mid-range matchups. Um, you know, I, I, I ra- would rather be the Pyromancer side of most of these things, probably because I'm better at playing Pyromancer than I am at playing Jeskai Control. But, sure, um, sure. you know, it's just a very powerful deck. The ability to go wide uh, against decks with a lot of spot removal is fantastic. Uh, Faithless Looting is a bonkers card, and Bedlam Reveler is just, is just excellent. So, um, 
I would not fault somebody for just taking the deck that won this tournament and playing the next one with it. Yeah, but I mean, you know, Mardu's just seems like it's in a great spot right now, I mm-hmm. think. It's like a better Jun deck. It's It's got the good matchups that Jun does, and it beats up on all these creature decks and stuff, so... Yep. I think it's in a good spot. Because it, it's also, I think, favored uh, against Jund and Jeskai, which is like a, a pretty good spot that you're probably going to want to be in moving forward. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly why this would be, if I were to play a mid-range deck, this would definitely be my choice. Um, some interesting choices in this first place list. I mean, those, like, going up to three main deck Blood Moons rather than two is a pretty specific metagame read uh i mean this deck has faithless looting so you can do that if you want but three is still a lot of main deck blood moons i i guess that's mostly to head off people who are trying to get one more level on the metagame and and we're trying to play valakut or something this weekend what's really interesting to me is these ensnaring bridges in the sideboard though and i'm not yeah totally sure uh i don't know if you have any particular thoughts on that but i i'll I'll say what I'm thinking after you have said what you're thinking, I guess. Well, one of the interesting things about Ensnaring Bridge is that you get a lot of equity in putting it in decks where people aren't going to see it coming mm-hmm. and aren't going to put any sort of like hate for it in their, or like board in any hate for it sure. um, in your post, uh, post-board matches. And like Burn is one of those decks where like sometimes they just like throw in some Ensnaring Bridges in the sideboard and can... It'll just win them the game on the spot, essentially. Right. Um, and Marty might just be another one of those decks where nobody's nobody's expecting to need artifact hate against a, a Mardu deck. So if you're playing a deck that really just gets hosed by Ensnaring Bridge, and you play against Mardu, and you don't bring in your you know your hate for that card, you're just gonna get rocked. And I think that humans is definitely one of those. Uh, archetypes where it, they can't really beat an ensnaring bridge and you know it, they're not going to bring in their rex sage against mardu so you know i think that might be like a pretty cool call for just like having a, a hoser card that people aren't going to be prepared for yeah it, it's and see that's the part that's a little confusing to me because mardu already has a strongly positive matchup against humans like it's kind of the reason to play the deck i think so yeah i mean that's fair um but I mean, I guess, number one, if you're expecting a lot of humans, especially, like, in the winner's metagame, then you might just want to go really hard against it. Um, And I think, like, Ensnaring Bridge is one of those, you know, multi-purpose cards, too. And and Lightning Bolt and Fatal Push line up really badly against Hollow One. That's a pretty tough matchup for Pyromancer. At least they're good draws. And Ensnaring Bridge is very good against that deck so that that might have been the reasoning for the bridges going in that's a place where shoring up a weakness rather than in in humans where you're like beating the dead horse a little bit so that that may be the reason for the bridges i i would be interested in in talking to him and seeing why you know what the thinking was behind them but and it's definitely very cool in the deck because with all these one power guys you can attack on your turn you know do the old uh thopter sword artifact deck thing where you attack on your turn and then play the card from your hand so uh definitely works well in the deck i mean if you're gonna beat a dead horse i think that humans is probably the right one to 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 beat up on (laughs) for this particular weekend you know yeah um and so yeah i mean i don't know uh i'm i'm typically not a proponent of putting in cards that like host good matchups or whatever but right you know if humans is if you're really expecting to play against humans like four times in a weekend, then sure, I can I can see that. Yeah, and humans didn't do 
like exceptionally well in this tournament there's you know one in the top eight and a couple more in the top 32 still reasonably represented but yeah i mean i guess like i'm sure it was very represented on day one so the probably can't hurt to overside board a little bit against it yeah yeah but yeah oh yeah also uh just want to point out no affinity in the top 32 i mean if you look at the number of Jeskai control decks that were running around, that kind of makes sense. That matchup is so miserable. But seeing none in the top 32 is definitely a little bit of a surprise. Yeah, I'm, and at, being at the tournament, I definitely saw a ton of Jeskai control just littered throughout day two. Um, okay. I played against Jeskai control, I think, for like the first three matches that I played in day two, I played against Jeskai control. Um, <laughs> so it was definitely all over that tournament. And I, that... Being the case, I, I'm not surprised to see Affinity not have a very good showing in the second day of competition. Yeah. One thing to note about Jeskai Control is that Teferi, Hero of Dominaria, is one of the cards that's kind of probably pushing it to greater success in the mid-range matchups, I would think. It's, you know, like it totally replaced Jace the Mind Sculptor in uh, the second place deck in the open, and I think in a, a couple other decks, no Jaces to be found. And uh, mostly to fairies. And a ton of food, fairies. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... Right, so that's kind of like the build that Nikolic popularized mm-hmm. a couple, like, pretty early on in the printing of Jace, or, sorry, in the printing of Teferi, is that he was like, all right, we're going to bring out all these Jaces because he wasn't happy with them, and we're going to put in two Teferis. And that deck had a lot of success at the team open in Baltimore, and people started testing it and liking it a lot, and... Yeah, it seems like Teferi is just like, uh, uh, specifically for that deck, kind of like the perfect piece that they were missing. Because, like, the ability, like, since all of your spells are so efficient, like, two mana is huge. You can do, like, two removal spells with that, you can counter something with that. So, like, slamming your Teferi and then untapping two lands, it pretty much means that you're, you know, you're still pretty much good to go on what you want to be doing. Yeah, I guess that's a reason why we're seeing these, like, increased numbers of Logic Knots. Like, the three Logic Knots uh, is definitely more than we're we're used to seeing, but it's fantastic if you Teferi untap two lands and then just have Counterspell up. That's excellent. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so, it seems like it just kind of fits really well into that archetype. Mm-hmm. And I'm I wouldn't be surprised to see a lot of that moving forward, um, but w- within kind of our team, we're, we've been still debating whether or not the numbers on those planeswalkers is correct. Two Teferis might be what a lot of people play from now on, just because that's what's had success in these opens and everything. Mm-hmm. But Jace is still a busted magic card, so we're kind of thinking maybe you know maybe we want to do like a two Jace one Teferi split or something like that, but. Yeah. People are really loving these Teferis right now, so um, I wouldn't be surprised to just see the two Teferis moving forward. Yeah, and the thing is, like, you rarely play Jace on turn four. Like, that's very difficult to do in Modern. You, you're you you're much more interested in trading off a bunch of cards and then getting your Jace down, and that often doesn't happen until turn six or seven or so. And when you're at that point in the game, like, Teferi just costs one mana less than Jace, effectively. And that's... That's a really powerful difference. Uh, like a, a lot of times, you're actually gonna just be able to play the Teferi a turn earlier than you are gonna be able to play your Jace. So that's huge. And uh, I think the ability to answer cards like like Blood Moon and stuff. Um, like I know Ross Miriam was talking about his selection of Blue Moon this weekend, 
And uh, one of the reasons that he was playing it is because he really likes the Jeskai matchup. And he really likes Blood Moon in that matchup because it um, reduces the ability of the Jeskai decks to have a bunch of blue mana available. So it's hard for them to like win counter wars and stuff. And so, you know, potentially being able to answer a Blood Moon and then get your get your mana back, uh, you know, like Teferi just, just fills a lot of holes and being able to deal with any non-land permanent is really powerful out of a, a Jeskai colored deck. So I'm, I, I got to be pretty high on it at this point, I think. Yeah, I'm, I, I agree. I think that it definitely belongs in that deck. Um, and it's definitely very, very powerful. Yeah. But, you know, for every for every like scenario that you can come up with where Teferi is better than Jace, I think that there are also a bunch of scenarios where Jace is going to be better than Teferi. Yeah, that's So uh, it'll be interesting to see kind of like where the split is on those Planeswalkers like a couple months from now. Definitely. After people really, really get a feel for how everything is going. Yep. I definitely am excited to see, you know, what that how the metagame breaks down and like what you know we're gonna arrive at like a oh this is this is really what we should have been doing the whole time but it, it takes a long time to get there right right i uh don't really like this fourth place build of just guy control this is kind of more of a jonathan rossum kind of 75 with spell quellers and two geists main deck but boy casting geist against something like humans Seems pretty mis- like seem- that seems like a way to lose yeah. a game against humans with Jeskai control is drawing Geist of Saint Traft in your opening hand. Yeah, Jeskai Geist. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely rather would rather call this probably more of like a tempo deck because it seems just like that's how this plays out more often than not. It's kind of like a burn counter burn mm-hmm. style deck than anything else. So, uh, but, you know, it definitely has its kind of spot in the metagame, I think. Yeah. You know, you're, you're better positioned against things like, like the big mana decks and everything that mm-hmm. are traditionally going to prey on, like, the, the super controlling versions of Jeskai. So this is kind of like, like a different take or whatever. And I think that the, re- like, the Geist being bad against humans and stuff is probably the reason that he's only playing two. I mean, I've definitely seen, like, three or four of these Geists in this deck. Right, before. right. Like um, when, just because sometimes it's the best creature you can cast. When Rossum was just like top eighting invitational after invitational, it was on the back of like turn three Geist kill you before your cards do anything, and, and the deck was built right, around right. that for sure. Yeah. yeah. So that's mostly that's what I've got to say about modern. I think I don't know if you've got any more uh, interesting stuff from this weekend to talk about. Um, I think I've said my piece mostly. Uh, gave my story on on death shadow and everything <laughs> uh so yeah so uh, we so yeah moving on to standard i guess right yeah uh we definitely want to give standard its due i've been playing i mean i've just been playing magic online i've been jamming some leagues uh running different decks to try to see what feels good and it's definitely in just sort of a constant state of flux the the big thing in standard is basically to figure out what size you want to be game one and then what size you want to be post board and we're seeing a lot of a lot of like really fundamental experimentation with that i think one deck that's that's really interesting is one of the top four decks from gp toronto and let me pull that up um so basically one of the things that we've seen is that red black was definitely the deck to be playing in gp birmingham six out of the top eight half of the top 32 basically 
was on Red Black. And the level one build of Red Black is to start out as an aggressive deck with like Bomat Couriers, another one drop, uh, Scrap Peep Scroungers, and then you transition to in games two and three to a, d- depending on the matchup, to a more Planeswalker and removal heavy deck. But the problem with that is it the deck starts cannibalizing itself at some point. And uh, it's very difficult to be a Bomat Courier deck if you're going to play against Goblin Chain Whirlers all the time, which, you know, Red Black is, is a Goblin Chain Whirler deck. And if the metagame is like 40% Red Black, then Bomat Courier starts looking really, really bad. So uh, what has happened a lot is that people have been, you know, trimming on one drops and playing rather than Bomat Couriers, they've been running either very few one-drops or no one-drops or only Soulscar Mages and or Inventor's Apprentices. So they don't have guys that die to opponents' Goblin Chain Whirlers. But then that puts you in a really weird place against decks like Blue-White Control because you don't have those starts that they just can't deal with anymore. You play like a two-drop and uh, maybe a two-drop like if you're kind of lucky because your deck is so big. And then your sideboard plan is stuff like more Planeswalkers and uh, Arguel's Bloodfast and stuff, but just kind of slow stuff. But what was really cool was this deck, Jennifer Kratz, uh top four deck, Black Red Vehicles. Um, what this had in the sideboard was it put the Bomat Couriers and even four Glint Sleeve Siphoners in the sideboard, which I just think is like absolutely brilliant. You know, it starts out as a pretty mid-range deck with three Chandras with Glorybringers with Recurring the Link Phoenix's main deck. Um, that's not a deck that's capable of beating blue-white control. But then in your sideboard, you uh, go up or you go down, I mean, and you have access to some like really brutal card advantage early game drops in Courier and Glintsleaf Siphoner. And uh, I haven't seen that anywhere else. And I think that's that's really smart. I have also seen some lists of green black that have moved the glint sleeve siphoner to the sideboard and that's something i'm definitely a fan of as well because these are cards that are really really good and they're just very bad against chain whirler um and that doesn't mean you need to cut them from your deck entirely and to be able to bring them back in in the matchups like blue white where they're excellent i think is is a, a really smart move yeah chain whirler seems to have had a, a insanely large impact on people's uh, deck construction uh, which is pretty crazy. Yeah, it's... I don't know if I would call it oppressive at this point, but, like, being on the draw and having a Glintsleeve Siphoner in your opening hand against a Chain Whirler deck is just, like, the most miserable <laughs> yeah, feeling not, in the not world. what you want to be doing. Yeah. Like, I've seen builds of green-black where they wanted a couple of two-mana Explore guys, and they ran Seeker's Squire over Merfolk Branchwalker because it has two toughness even if you miss on the explore. So that's the state we're in right now. But like a couple of other things that are really interesting is that you've got to make a call about what your metagame is going to be. And so if you're playing a deck like Red Black and you think you're going to be playing against a lot of Red Black, then I think a deck like uh, Jennifer Kratz is is great because you're game you're kind of pre-sideboarded for red black but that's not always the right place to be and so we see like the mocks the 8-0 list didn't shave on one drops at all and it's playing its main deck bow mat couriers and it's kind of the the 
slightly older version that is very, very aggressive game one and then transitions to a mid-range deck game two and three if that's what it wants to do instead of being mid-range game one and going more aggressive if, if that's what the matchup is asking for. So that's clearly a call saying like, hey, I think I'm going to be playing against more blue-white control decks or something like that, and so I would rather win my game ones against that and then be more prepared for the other decks post-board. So that's, that's, this is definitely a, a format that's rewarding, like having your, your nose in the air and figuring out exactly and making a pretty hard call on what you think you're going to be playing against. And that's tough. That's, that's really difficult. So lots to think about when picking your exact 75 for this format. I really like how Standard has gone into the spot where people are doing a lot of maneuvering in their deck building process mm -hmm. making your your main deck bigger and then like being able to go smaller post sideboard is seems like a genius innovation right for uh the expected metagame of a bunch of black red vehicles decks that are small to begin with and then go bigger later like if you can just like start big you just have such a good advantage there yep um it's really cool to see all these edges being gained in kind of like innovative uh, deck building ideas in terms of like, you know, how to position all of your cards in either the sideboard or the main deck and stuff like that. I think that's like a really a really neat aspect of standard that we don't get to see a lot of in any other format. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's so difficult to like adjust the size of your deck in a format like modern, but in standard it's the most one of the most important things you can be doing right right for sure and there's definitely like what i keep seeing is stuff that that surprises me actually so you know like jeff cunningham also top aided the mocks and he did it with green black constrictor which i you know would not want to play in a red black heavy meta game and if i did you know my thinking was hey if we're going to play this deck, then what we want to do is kind of go back in time a little bit and play a lot of uh, Bristling Hydras that pressure Planeswalkers really well and that removal spells are bad against. And Jeff kind of went the other way here and doubled down. And this deck is just like a super focused mid-range four Ravenous Chupacabra, four Verderous Gearhulk deck that I, I think... The thinking behind this deck is, hey, most of the red-black decks are going to be low to the ground game one. And so being a medium creature deck is fine. Like, I, I felt that game ones against red-black are okay. It's just the games two and three when they're all removal and planeswalkers are extremely difficult. Yeah. But then I, I feel kind of embarrassed that I didn't think of his sideboard plan here, which is just put Shaper Sanctuary in the sideboard. And... <laughs> All removal spells deal. Yeah. <laughs> I can I can deal with that. And for some reason in my head, like, yeah, Shaper Sanctuary in all the mono green decks, perfect sideboard card. And when I was sitting there, like, looking at all the possible cards for my green black deck for uh, GP Birmingham, like, Shaper Sanctuary just wasn't even in my cards. And I feel really embarrassed about that, honestly. Yeah, I mean, you know, every once in a while you overlook a card that you know, turns out to be really, really good later. But it's kind of hard to think of everything that could be, like, weird and niche like that. Yeah. And I, I, I'm not really sure, like, what what I can be doing to make sure that next time I'm 
sitting before a GP, I, I think of the card that I need in my sideboard. Maybe it's just more of like, next time I need to be talking to a couple of people while I'm doing that so that somebody shouts out Shaper Sanctuary and I go, you're a genius and put it in my sideboard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That and that happens a lot, you know. Is that you know every once in a while somebody shouts out some card and it's eye opening, you know. Yeah, but so I, I I do really like this build of black green, but I've also seen like in the five O lists there have been a couple of other black green lists that have gone back to servant of the conduit and bristling hydras, so that is a way to attack this format as well. But uh, I I like the maintaining the main deck ravenous chupacabras that 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 Jeff was able to do because I do think that ravenous chupacabra is is really well positioned in this format. So you know it, it's tough to strike that balance there, and you can't have your deck have like eleven four drops in it or whatever. But uh, right, right. So but chupacabra has been you know I've I've seen it been really good in yeah. uh, in standard right now. So it's yeah. Good. It, especially when you have four Verter's Gear Hulks, just having more bodies around just random guys left to throw plus one plus one counters is really, really good. Yeah. So And Trooper Cover just works really, really well with Adventurous Impulse as well. Yeah. So Yeah, definitely. But one reason to uh shy away from it is that Scarab God is making a little bit of a comeback too. True. Yeah. Like in the in the mocks and I've I've always hated these mid range blue black decks i know it's like brad nelson's favorite thing in the world um <laughs> but i i just I, I really hate playing it but in the mocks we had a couple of uh blue black mid-range decks x and one which is quite impressive they've been popping up in in leagues and stuff you know if people are trimming down on Vraska's contempts and stuff then scarab guide can be pretty decent but it's just so bad against teferi that i have a lot of trouble visualizing myself happily casting scarab god in most games <laughs> right right yeah uh especially like the teferi control decks but um one of the uh, one of these blue black mid-range decks from the mox is actually running a splash of teferi which yeah. is interesting genius perfect <laughs> yeah so i mean i guess that fixes that problem teferi is one of those cards that kind of makes bad decks good our friend lee played a pvtq and made the finals with this like jeskai super friends deck that ran four karns temporal sundering in it uh and nice it looks super sweet so i took it for a spin and it was really fun it's one of those decks that you can kind of draw your cards in the wrong order and it's not very good but when you do it it is unbeatable you know i had one game where i hit eight mana played a chandra and then my opponent didn't get a turn until i ulted chandra so <laughs> geez yeah so like this format has some really sweet stuff you can do um but there were a bunch of games where i was like hmm, this game isn't going really well what can i draw at this spot and then i would realize oh yeah i just need to draw teferi and i'm totally fine and it, yeah, yeah when i drew teferi i was totally fine so yeah teferi is just one of those cards that this format is going to be kind of defined by it for for a long time i think uh, blue white looked pretty dead like two weeks in it looked like it had been soundly defeated by white black but it's pretty decent against the red black decks and even though it, it absolutely has exploitable weaknesses like it's it, if your threats 
are chosen to line up well against its removal, like that's the reason Heart of Kirin is, is so good right now. Um, like you can absolutely exploit weaknesses in the deck, but Teferi just patches up a lot of stuff and makes, you know, it, blue-white would not be a deck without Teferi, but it makes it so much better and, and makes it a, a deck that's going to keep coming back in the metagame. And we should at least talk about a little bit these the blue-white Teferi decks that are running no win cons other than just four Teferis in the yeah. main deck. <laughs> yep. Um, yeah. Just like literally no way to win the game outside of like one Gideon, I guess, you can attack with a couple of times. But the the general win con is you cast Teferi and you minus three Teferi targeting itself to put it on top of your library once you're out of cards. Mm-hmm. You can't deck. <laughs> that's like, that's actually just like the primary win con of this deck, yeah. which is crazy. Yeah. And that's usually after you've ulted a Teferi or two so that... Right, yeah. I and mean, your opponent sh- at that point should be locked out of the game by you exiling all of their permanents with... Teferi ultimate. Right. Um, <laughs> and then you can demonstrate the loop of, yeah, I'm going to cast Teferi and target itself with its minus three ability to put it on top of my library so that I can't deck. Teferi's got you. Teferi is just so busted. It's I don't know. pretty Every busted. time I think more about it, it's just like, yeah, you know, you, you thought you were, you might lose a game or something, but Teferi's just got you covered on any axis. Have a permanent you can't deal with? All right, Teferi's got it. You're about to deck? No, Teferi's got you covered. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, yeah. It's just, yeah. <laughs> uh, man. Need some card advantage? Teferi's got you. Need to untap some lands? All right, let's do it. Teferi yeah. just does everything. Why? It's just, yeah. The, the fact that it's... Seeing play over Jace in modern control decks is very indicative of kind of how egregious this card is, I think. I, I yeah. don't know when we're going to hit the crazy. point where we're like, ugh, this is this is oppressive. Because it does still cost five mana, sort of. So how broken can it be? But yeah, it's definitely like one of those cards that you have to be both building your deck around the fact that you know Teferi is a thing and also be playing your games always aware of the fact that your blue-white opponent or your your Esper opponent can cast Teferi next turn and what does that mean? Yeah. Like, it's it's a reason that I, like, hold walking ballistas and stuff or, uh, you know, like, don't expose them to removal and, and try to present threats so that, like, if they were to play a Teferi, they would need to minus it to to get rid of a guy and then you can at least ballista it or something. It's, it, it, there's a lot of, like, really delicate gameplay that, that goes on around Teferi, but sometimes it just comes down and is a hammer and there's nothing you can do about it. Right, right. Yeah, Teferi's like, bro, you're not going to lose games with me. It's it's going to be fine. We got this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so some kind of individual things that are are important to note right now. And, and these are just like individual ways that, that I've seen decks uh, adapting to what's going on in the metagame, which is, I think, a really important process to pay attention to, especially... Because, like, you need to be aware of it, even if it stops being good, because the format might loop around again, that sort of thing. But the adoption of Sorcerer's Spyglass in the control decks is really important. I I don't like Spyglass in most decks, but uh, out of the control decks, to shut down Hearts of Kirin or Planeswalkers that you aren't running is really, really powerful. And to strand, like, it's so much better to Spyglass a Heart of Kirin than to remove it. Because 
I feel like almost every time I've killed a Heart of Kirin, they've just cast their one that was stuck in their hand. Yeah. But, man, you spyglass that thing. Yeah, it's that's definitely pretty good, for sure. <laughs> um, and you can also spyglass, you know, just like a bunch of stuff in Standard right now. Yeah. Yeah. Like the blue-white deck, you know, if you're only running Teferi as your Planeswalker, then spyglassing their Karn is really good. Spyglassing Chandra, always great. Powerful card. And you're never, like, guessing in the dark with Pithing, like you are with Pithing Needle, because you do get to look at their hand, so. And if you're a deck, you know, if you're not playing Teferi, you can, you know, Teferi, Spyglassing Teferi is, seems like a pretty, pretty good option right now, if, if that's something you're in the market for. Definitely, definitely could be. I, it's, it's like a pretty narrow, you know, like, if you're bringing it in against, like, a, a blue-white control deck, it's a pretty narrow answer to Teferi. Because you're not really spyglassing much else, unless you're getting, like, there as Cantor or something, but that seems not great. Well, the hilarious part is that if, you, if you're playing against the no-win cons blue-white control deck, and That's you true. Use, like, land a spyglass on Teferi, they have, like, what, one commit? They have, they have their cast-outs. Oh, the cast-outs. Okay, gotcha. So, like, cast-out is one of the reasons that I, I don't love spyglass out of anything except for the blue-white control decks. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. That's fair. But I'm I'm sure we'll see more adaptation over time. You know, like like white black still beats blue white pretty pretty easily. Like that's still a great matchup for white black and you can I think you can build white black to have a strong matchup against red black, but at, at this point from what I have seen white black is still a pretty hard meta game call and you know, if you play against several green creature decks then um, you're not going to be super happy with your decision in a tournament, but it does help keep these decks under control. So we're definitely in a kind of cyclical rock, paper, scissors, and whatever the fourth rock, paper, scissors thing is metagame. And I would say that like in general, control is very strong and beats up on like normal creature decks, including red, black, Unless you have a really good sideboard plan, which I think that Bomek Curry or Glint Sleeve Siphoner plan is one of. And then White-Black is very good against Blue-White. And then Green decks are very good against White-Black. The the White-Blue matchup really depends on what each player's plan is again. And the Red-Black decks are quite strong against the Green decks in general. So that's kind of where we are right now. But every one of those claims is super up to like like could immediately become falsified by somebody making five different sideboard card choices so like like those individual choices are so important in this standard right now and i keep being surprised when i see people's sideboards and going oh man that's a great idea so (laughs) yeah yeah definitely a lot of room for you know people continuing to come up with innovations like that yeah you know it's a super active standard that rewards just having dived headfirst into this standard and knowing like all the iterations, which is not possible. But <laughs> right, 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 right. But but knowing as much as you can is a good start. <laughs> but honestly, I think that we're lining up for a pretty interesting pro tour because you know all the stuff that's happening that's like pretty dynamic in the standard format. It'll be interesting to see what people come up with and like the strategies that they're trying to implement for uh, the Pro Tour. Yeah, 
I'm I'm so excited to watch this. Have you got? I, I know you, JJ is queued for this PT. Do you have other teammates who are going to be playing in it? So I'm I'm helping out. I think it's Team Card Hoarder. Okay. Uh, oh, okay. Specifically, like the Kiefer kids. Sure. I'm going up to DC this weekend to play in the the limited team Grand Prix with Quinn Kiefer and Rio Trevathan. Um, and then after that, I'm actually going to Richmond to help test with a bunch of guys, even though I'm not queued myself. But yeah, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be in 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 the trenches for all of all of that testing a little bit. So that should be fun. Yeah, awesome. I mean, I'll I'll be super interested to hear what those guys uh, are coming up with. Whatever you're allowed to share, then I, I assume post PT we'll be able to to get that whole picture. Right. We probably I probably won't be able to talk about really anything until after the pro tour. So. Yeah. Yeah, makes sense. But yeah, it's cool. be interesting. Awesome. Yeah, uh, until then, like my advice for this standard is like you just gotta be constantly changing the cards in your deck. <laughs> like holy crap. Just like adapting, I guess. It's yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. There's there's no I, I mean honestly, like at this point, I think you can pick a deck and stick with it as long as you're just willing to completely change your sideboard based on what your expected metagame is and understand what options are available to you in your sideboard and even going beyond changing your sideboard and being willing to make decisions like all right these bomac couriers they need to go away because they're too bad Mm -hmm. these glint sleeve siphoners need to go into the sideboard you know changing your main deck as well yeah yeah and these are able to adapt these are fundamental changes to how the deck kind of functions and i think Probably a lot of these changes are really hard to come up with unless you're very familiar with the deck. So if you're chasing the meta and constantly going like, okay, I got to play red, black now. Okay, I got to go back to to white, black. Like you might not be putting yourself in a position to choose the best 75 of a particular deck if you're just trying to like get on top of where the meta is shifting. So that's a, a, a pretty interesting wrinkle to this format right now. Yeah, for sure. For sure. All right. Well, is there anything else that we want to go over for standard? Uh, hold on. Let me check my notes. Nothing in particular. I think we've covered pretty much everything that I wanted to say. This standard is just fascinating, and uh, if you're not playing it, I I recommend giving it a shot. Definitely. I, like I I've probably like emphasized like how quickly it's changing t- in a way that like if you weren't going to play standard you might be scared to play standard but it's also just really fun the games are super super fun and uh i would encourage anybody to just try it out because it's it's excellent right now yeah i agree it seems pretty crazy yeah good luck this weekend dominaria team seal definitely sounds like an adventure so i i hope that goes very well for you <laughs> Yeah, we're um, about to enter the trenches of testing for that, and it should be should be interesting for sure. Yeah, cool, cool. Yeah, I definitely do that thing where like you find another team and then you build decks and then you switch pools, and because I, it sounds very very difficult. So, <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm excited. Should be yeah, fun. cool, cool. Well, I don't know if there's coverage, but if there is, hopefully I'll see you. <laughs> Yeah, that would be that would be sweet. I'm uh I'm with I'm with Quinn and Rio, and and those guys seem to be getting more and more popular. So I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, yeah, uh, it seems like a, a team that could end up on camera. So fingers crossed. All right, thank you so much to everybody for listening this week. 
if you want to find us on the internet, the best way to find us is at our website, mtggrindcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter. Uh, I'm tweeting from at mtg underscore grindcast, and Collins is also on Twitter. At Collins Mullen. And you can head to Collins' Twitter or to our website if you want to find him for coaching. Yeah, I offer coaching services. You can find more info on that on our website, which is just mtggrindcast.com. Yeah, I, that's pretty much it for me. So have a great week. All right. Until next time. Thank you.